It seems like you can get an entire week's worth of news in a single day in the current political and economic environment. I'm Kimberly Adams, filling in for Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. Usually, I'm in D.C., covering Congress and the Trump administration for Marketplace, but not even I can escape the big news of the week. Steel and aluminum, we'll see... A lot of good things happen. We're going to have new jobs popping up. We're going to have much more vibrant companies. And then the rest is going to be up to management to make them truly great. If you could ever make U.S. steel like it used to be, we'd be very happy. Gun control, steel tariffs, and the administration lost yet another top official. And that's just some news out of Washington. But we start with immigration. March 5th was supposed to be the official end date of DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Back in the fall, Attorney General Jeff Sessions said this. I'm here today to announce that the program known as DACA that was effectuated under the Obama administration is being rescinded. Two lower courts blocked this action, and this week, the Supreme Court declined to hear a Trump administration appeal of those rulings. Although it's a reprieve for the so-called dreamers, a level of uncertainty remains. That uncertainty can make it hard to run a business. The Center for American Progress, a D.C.-based think tank, says about 5% of DACA recipients have started their own companies, and for one of them... Losing DACA status could mean losing his business, threatening the 20 or so jobs he's created and the childhood dream that pushed him here. Baseball was my first love. It was America's pastime, and it was my American dream as well. I miss it pretty much every day. My name is Mustafa Gonum. I am 27 years old. What I do for work is I run an event staffing company. We work exclusively with boutique hotels in New York City, supplying staff for their private and banquet events. I originally was born in Egypt, uh, came over to the States, New York City, when I was seven years old, about 10 or 11 years old. My visa expired, and that's when I entered uh, the illegal status. Played baseball, football on track in high school, stuck with baseball all the way through college, played at the varsity level. DACA and finding out about it, we immediately drove to our lawyers to get more information and see, okay, how can we get this thing started as quickly as possible? Because at that point, I just wanted to play baseball. It was my primary reason for going to school. It helped me stay in school. After uh, finishing my degree, it took me six months to find my first real job. I ended up uh, getting fired from the job. And I went to working, catering, just because that was kind of what was available. And I said, I'm going to be the best caterer in the world. With what I have right now, I'm going to be great. Exactly eight months later, management had taken notice to what was happening. And they were starting to have some issues with the staffing company that was servicing them at the time. So I went to management and I said, you know, rather than you bringing in a new company to come in here and service the hotel, would you give me the opportunity to start my own business? And before I can finish that sentence, management said, absolutely. My company was created on August 30th of 2016. You think it's cool to run a business, but then you actually get into the logistics of it, hiring, maintaining people, and to run that operation as a one-man show uh, is no easy task. DACA recipients are everyday Americans. The only way we're different is, like President Obama said, is on paper. After the program was rescinded, I was put in a position where I had to say something. We employ, depending on our season, anywhere from 20 to 30 people. 
And I explained to them what the situation was. And to my surprise, a lot of them kind of walked away with like a shock. I don't think they even knew what DACA was. So just explaining to them the program, and now that the program is canceled, what it could mean. Literally everything that you've ever built can be taken away. It even comes down to the point where I'm considering how much money I leave in the bank. I mean, fortunately, I haven't been put in a position where I needed any sort of business loan outside of maybe some small credit cards uh, that we've always made sure to pay back. And yeah, there's fear, but I've grew up with fear. At this point, the best thing for myself, my family, the company, is just to make sure I keep showing up. There's a workforce here in DACA recipients alone, some who work in Microsoft, some who work in Google and major corporations. We may be even teaching your children. We may be preparing your medicine. We may be driving you from one destination to the other. We are literally everywhere. Financially, when you talk about 800,000 to over a million people who are DACA recipients, the taxes that we're paying, the taxes that are automatically getting deducted from our pay, where is this money going to be replaced? That's when everyday Americans or citizens start to really say, wait a minute, this DACA thing does affect me. Like, this is a lot closer than I think. Probably last week, and I was listening to a song by Luther Vandross, and it said, a house is not a home. And I think for me, I, I have a tough time defining what is my home, because it's not Egypt. I can't go back to the country that I can't even read the street signs and know how to get around in. And I can't call America my home because I'm not necessarily wanted here. That was Mustafa Gonim, owner of The Dream Supply, based in Queens, New York. That piece was produced by Peter Balanon Rosen. And you can read more about DACA business owners on our website. Go to marketplace.org. You're listening to Marketplace Weekend. He was known as America's pastor. You either have to decide that you're going to serve the gods of materialism all around us or the true and the living God. The Reverend Billy Graham spent more than six decades preaching the gospel and was buried Friday in North Carolina. During his life, he built a vast network of evangelical Christian churches, groups, media, and businesses. In terms of him building the business side, I think a lot of that is about his ability to be an individual entrepreneur, of to develop an institution underneath his public speaking and preaching and all of that. That's Richard Flory, Senior Director of Research and Evaluation at the University of Southern California's Center for Religion and Civic Culture. Graham's financial legacy includes two nonprofit organizations. One of them, Samaritan's Purse, raised $680 million in revenue in 2016. There were the, the multifaceted arms of what he did. There was an, this educational component that was helped to, to sort of uh, support the the preaching aspect that he that he went on. So he it wasn't just that people sent money so Billy Graham could travel the world and preach, but the money that they were able to raise from people as well as how what other other means they had to raise support went into other aspects of his ministry, which were largely educational. And as well, there was some uh, some social outreach kinds of helping the poor and things like that that they did. 
Billy Graham's evangelical empire was primarily focused on bringing people towards his mission, but a lot of times that came with money, a call for donations, and people choosing sometimes to turn over entire businesses to this mission. And I wonder how Billy Graham affected the flow of money in the evangelical community. On the one hand, these are businesses. On the other hand, they're completely supported by people who believe in the mission of them. And, and the same would be true for Billy Graham. So if people that supported him financially had a commitment to the kind of mission that he was pursuing, primarily a preaching mission, a, a preaching of Christian salvation and things like that. But he also had uh, outreach kinds of programs through media and 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 helping less advantaged people and things like that. So I think that it's, to me, it's a question of scale rather than type. So it's because he's such a transcendent figure, it's not just a local operator. He, his efforts end up attracting a much broader range of supporters, perhaps, than, than the local church might. But whenever there is a lot of money involved, there's often a concern about corruption and how these funds are being used. How is the financial transparency in the evangelical church maintained? Well, you're right to to bring that up, that there there has been a long history of that concern. And in fact, in the 70s and 80s, there were certain televangelist scandals that had to do with this corruption and, and misuse of money. Um, organizations have sprung up that um, that actually evangelical groups can become members of, and they have certain sorts of accounting practices, transparency practices, and the like that help to keep them uh, away from those kinds of uh, temptations, I guess you could say. And I think, too, the, the larger organizations are more able, that have a more robust system built into the for their activities like that are more likely or less likely, I suppose I would say, to be less transparent. The, the temptation comes when there's less oversight and when there's one or few people that are running the show, as it were. Um, Billy Graham and, and his organizations always had a, a, a system built in, as any good business would. And, you know, there are groups out there where they're you know, one or two people are really calling all the shots. And that I think they have a much higher likelihood of, of misusing money, whether they do or not is another question, because of the lack of accountability more broadly to their boards and to the people that support them. With Billy Graham's passing, what do you see as the financial future of the evangelical church? Well, evangelicalism is has a de- demographic problem right now, and that has to do with declining numbers. Uh, there's some dispute over this, particularly if you're inside of evangelicalism, you'll hear people say there's not a decline, but if, but uh, the, the demographic numbers from outside are that they're, it's shifting. There are fewer people, they're losing their members across different kinds of groups. Some are growing. And that's a problem because uh, their support comes from the people in the pews or the people that go to their schools, things like that. And as that number dwindles, then you're going to have a harder time to support those those ministries. So it's hard it, in the longer term. My hunch is there's going to be some um, retrenchment and reduction in the kinds of institutions that are out there that can just simply be make it as a business. Uh, of course, we, that remains to be seen how that works out. 
Richard Flory is Senior Director of Research and Evaluation at the USC Center for Religion and Civic Culture, and he also co-authored The Rise of Network Christianity. Thank you so much. Thank you. At Marketplace, we're all about the numbers. So here's a breakdown of this week's news by the numbers, the Uber edition, with Marketplace producers Eliza Mills and Tony Wagner. Thanks, Kimberly. Our first number is 100. That's how many healthcare organizations are already using Uber's newly launched business line, Uber Health. A reported 3.6 million people in the U.S. miss healthcare appointments because they don't have reliable transportation. Uber Health allows clinics, hospitals, and rehab centers to assign rides for patients and clients. The passenger doesn't even need the Uber app. The new service is also tailored to the healthcare industry and meets patient confidentiality standards. 14. That's how many times longer Bay Area customers have to wait for an Uber Wave, which provides wheelchair-accessible rides, compared to a standard Uber. Access to the service is subject to a new lawsuit alleging that Uber discriminates against people in wheelchairs. It's not the first time Uber has come under fire for not meeting the needs of people with disabilities. A 2015 lawsuit claimed the company refused to give rides to 40 blind passengers with guide dogs. This latest legal action against the ride-hailing firm isn't seeking monetary damages, but does want Uber to provide equal access. 1635 That's how many dollars one man's Uber ride home cost after a long night of drinking. Kenneth Bachman took a pricey ride from West Virginia to New Jersey. To add insult to injury, the ride would have only cost $800. If Bachman hadn't ordered an Uber XL. But look, who are you to judge? After years of job seekers having to scramble to boost skills and update resumes to get a job, the tables are turning. More and more, falling unemployment means employers now have to step their game up to recruit and retain workers. Companies are scrambling to try and find the right people for the right positions. Um, A lot of companies are realizing they're going to have to change their standards a little bit, where they might be looking for the perfect candidate before. Now good might be the substitute for perfect. That's Tony Lee, vice president and head of talent acquisition at the Society for Human Resource Management. He says that a tight labor market means big changes for traditional onboarding. Companies are spending more time and more money recruiting and training new employees. Usually, someone starting a new position would be new to the company, but not the job. That's the training everybody expects. You know, teach me how you do it as opposed to teach me how to do it, period. Now you might get somebody who's worked in a, in a corollary skill, you know, not exactly the same thing. And the company says, you know, we can't find anyone who does exactly what we want. So let's hire this person who kind of knows what we do. And now we're just going to have to invest six weeks, eight weeks, maybe six months to get that person up to speed so they're really good at what they do. Lee says businesses are also doing more to reach out to and accommodate job candidates who might not have been obvious choices in the past. That means more opportunities for formerly incarcerated citizens, older workers, working parents and caregivers, disabled workers and veterans. When companies have a hiring need and it becomes acute, all of a sudden a lot of the old stereotypes and biases fade away because need seems to outweigh everything else. If a company is looking to hire 20 customer service people and they need those people yesterday, 
customer service is an extremely competitive position to try and fill these days. There's, you know, many, many of those jobs and not enough people out there. They're starting to think about candidates who may have to work from home three days a week because they have elder care responsibilities. Or they're thinking about candidates who may have be on the spectrum, the autism spectrum, that they never really would have thought of hiring before who can do the job beautifully. Some businesses are doing more to keep current employees in their jobs as well, with more competitive wages, benefits, and flexible schedules. Lee says companies that can't or won't adapt are in for some serious competition. One business owner in Houston, Texas, explains how she competes. I'm Maria Rios. I'm the president and CEO for Nation Waste. We provide services to our construction industry, industrial industry, for the big dumpsters for construction. As you see all those dumpsters, those dumpsters are utilized for commercial and industrial, as well for demolition. We have a great group of employees that we hired, and uh, we implement our policies and, of course, our culture. And our company culture is family. And so everyone that comes and works for us becomes part of our family. I have evolved into thinking about the long game, hiring long-time members with certain mindset. I want to be a trailblazer on creating long-term jobs, not just short-term jobs. To compete with other companies, I need to stay resilient and proactive. I am not going to win the wage game, but I will win the terms of creating family-style jobs and have an atmosphere of open-door policies. We can give second opportunities, second chance to, to workers, um, you know, that kind of uh, mentality, and it works for our business as well. The more they stay, the more benefits they get. They know more about the job. They're productive. Uh, they can be role models to newcomers. When you have happy employees, you know, uh, then the client kind of report to that employee. Uh, they have that client and worker relationship. And as you know, I mean, our employees are the face of our business. So it's important to have good faces and long-term faces are better. It's an investment, and, uh, and that's something that uh, you try to, to keep. Imagine you are uh, the school training these employees in the industry and the hydraulic and the driving and so on. And then um, when you lose one of these drivers, it's a great piece. Uh, it's a big investment, so it's a, actually a loss because you have to repeat and repeat doing that again. And, and training can be very, very expensive. When they see that they're doing well and we see profitability and we show that we are there for them as well, then it rebumps their energy also to, to keep doing what they're doing. That was Maria Rios, president and CEO of Nation Waste in Houston, Texas. A special thanks to Davis Land for his help with this piece. There's a company based in Michigan that says it can help kids with various attention deficit disorders without using drugs. Go online and you can see videos of happy children with electrodes attached to their heads watching a big screen. At NeuroCore Brain Performance Centers, we look at your brain waves to identify what's causing your ADHD symptoms. And with neurofeedback, we can eliminate the symptoms without medication. NeuroCore says it can help with anxiety and depression, too, even autism. 
Stop by one of our facilities in Boca Raton or Palm Beach Gardens to find out how we can help. NeuroCore, Brain Performance Centers. One of the major investors in NeuroCore is a very wealthy woman who also happens to be the Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos. In the third and final installment of our series on ethics in the Trump administration, Marketplace's Lizzie O'Leary spoke with investigative journalist Tom Sheck of APM Reports about what he's uncovered on NeuroCore, DeVos, and where the federal ethics system goes from here. Before we talk about why some people are concerned about Betsy DeVos's connection to this company, can you tell me a little bit more about NeuroCore and their treatment and whether it actually works? Well, NeuroCore has operations both in Michigan and in Florida, and their therapy relies on training that basically helps people refocus their brains. And the way they do this is they say they have them stare at video screens, and then whenever uh, something pops up or they lose focus, it it gets them to refocus again. Uh, But here's the problem. No peer-reviewed science backs up the company's treatment claims that the company is making. The Better Business Bureau also issued a statement saying NeuroCore should stop advertising that their product eliminates the need for medication to treat ADHD, anxiety, depression, and autism. Now, NeuroCore issued a written statement to the Better Business Bureau disputing that ruling, and they're standing by their claims, but the Better Business Bureau is also uh, standing by their claims as well. Well, so how does NeuroCore relate to Betsy DeVos, who we should note is a billionaire? Well, she has a pretty significant stake in the company. This is something that the public didn't know about when the Senate held a hearing on her confirmation. Chairman Alexander, Ranking Member Murray, Senators, thank you for the opportunity to be with you this afternoon. Because the hearing was held before DeVos's financial disclosure form and her ethics agreement were released. When President Obama entered the White House, Republicans insisted on having an ethics letter in hand before moving to a hearing. Democrats were not happy about that situation when they wanted the financial disclosure form before the hearing was held and also the ethics agreement because they wanted to know how DeVos was going to pledge to divest her holdings. I am extremely disappointed that we are moving forward with this hearing before receiving the proper paperwork from the Office of Government Ethics. So they asked her over and over on how she'd handle conflicts and here's her response. Where conflicts are identified, they will be resolved. I will not be conflicted, period. I commit that to you all. Two days after that hearing, the ethics office eventually released her paperwork, and that's where we learned that she was keeping her stake in NeuroCore, which is valued between $5 million and $25 million. Okay, so let's walk through this. She pledges to hold on to NeuroCorp, but says, I'm going to step away from any decisions that could relate to the company. I mean, that is, as we've been laying out, how the law is supposed to work. What's the problem here? Well, ethics officials like former Obama White House ethics czar Norm Eisen say it's still not enough, especially in this situation. They say that DeVos has the right to recuse herself from decision-making involving NeuroCorp, but they say the appearance of a conflict is still too big in this situation. If you're going to come in and do public service, do public service. Doesn't she have enough? Does she really need, while she's sitting at the Department of Education, overseeing education to invest in an education-related company? How can we be sure that the decisions she's making are not influenced by uh, her efforts to help that company or to help the industry now? How is Eisen saying it's a conflict for DeVos? Do, Do we know if any school districts are using NeuroCorp? 
Well, it isn't clear completely at this point because the company hasn't talked to us and the education department hasn't responded to our questions. But there are several arguments that ethics officials like Norm Eisen are making. First, the education department approves school improvement plans for local school districts. And so if a district wants to use NeuroCore to help students with ADHD, uh, does the department look at that favorably because of DeVos's stake in the company? Do districts contract with NeuroCore as opposed to another company because they want to curry favor with Betsy DeVos? And Eisen also says the other issue here is DeVos is basically endorsing a company that has not been proven effective through peer-reviewed studies. He says that sends a bad message to the education community as to where her priorities are at this point. I, Elizabeth DeVos, do solemnly swear. I, Elizabeth DeVos, do solemnly swear. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Well, and what has DeVos said about her investments? I can't find any public record of her discussing the company in her education department. As I mentioned, uh, didn't return calls uh, for this report. But here's the biggest kicker that's driving ethics officials bonkers. Uh, despite the criticism about her initial stake in NeuroCore and the fact that ethics officials were raising this as a red flag, DeVos bought an even bigger stake in the company after the Senate confirmed her. Her financial reports show her investing as much as $10.5 million in the company since April. Well, so over the past three weeks, we have been looking at the ethics system and how it's struggling to handle the Trump administration and part of the difficulty is because ethics experts believe that the system itself needs an update. But Kathleen Clark, an ethics lawyer with Washington University in St. Louis, said it's also an attitude in this administration. It's quite the understatement to say that this administration isn't worried about uh, ethics charges against it. At the very top, in the White House, this administration has, I think, demonstrated contempt for government ethics standards. And Norm Eisen said the Trump administration is basically trampling on the ethics system. This is like a cancer that has spread throughout the administration. I can tell you, when I was in the White House, I worked with other individuals to come into the cabinet, very high net worth individuals. You never saw anything like this uh, uh, in, in any administration where these questions are swirling around. And I think there is going to be accountability. You can't get away with this stuff forever. All right. So Eisen says, yeah, they can't get away with this stuff forever, but can't they? Uh, you know, from the folks who you have been talking with, um, it sounds as though our ethics laws really don't have a lot of teeth. Things rely on norms, not necessarily laws. When you talk to ethics experts, what do they say should be done? Well, there are two answers here. There's the ideal answer on what they want to see done and what might happen realistically. And so which one do you want me to start with here? <laughs> OK, let's start with ideal. OK, so the ideal situation is ethics officials want to have greater enforcement authority with the Office of Government Ethics. For example, they want the Office of Government Ethics, which is basically the ethics watchdog for the entire administration, to have subpoena power to dig deeper into a public employee's finances. Some also want the Office of Government Ethics to levy fines for failing to report assets. And there's also calls for greater disclosure rules. For example, the way that the, the rules are right now, if you're an individual, you have to re release your personal liabilities, like a mortgage, a home mortgage. But you don't have to re release your business liabilities. And this is a big concern when you have private companies, for example, President Trump or Betsy DeVos, because you don't really know who those individuals' business partners are first, and secondly, who the businesses owe money to. And that's a big question. 
realistically, is it likely that any of those things you laid out uh, could happen? Well, not anytime soon. It doesn't feel like Congress really wants to get in on this action in terms of trying to change ethics laws. Uh, But the vice chair of the Citizens for Ethics and Responsibility in Washington, Richard Painter, says Congress is basically acting like a potted plant. That's a direct quote. Painter was the ethics czar under George W. Bush, and he teaches law at the University of Minnesota. I'm a Republican. I've been a Republican for 30 years. I think this is going to be a disaster for the Republican Party in the fall of, um, of uh, 2018. Beyond 2018, though, Painter has a bigger concern. He's worried that ethics is becoming too partisan. Whether someone's conduct is unethical, it basically seems to depend on whether that person's in your party or the other party, and that worries Painter. And we should note here that we reached out to the White House and lawyers for President Trump's businesses, and they didn't respond to our questions. What you and Painter are getting at, though, is this incredibly important question – How you know, as a member of the public, whether something is a legitimate ethics scandal or if it is being used for political purposes to to undermine, you know, someone in the opposite party, someone you don't like. How is a voter supposed to know? Well, that's a really good question, because as you see with the investigation into Russia's interference in the 2016 presidential election, Republicans see that as political. All right, for months, the establishment destroyed Trump media and Democrats. They have been hysterical, breathless, and pushing all kinds of conspiracy theories. They're hoping Just like Democrats at the time the saw the impeachment of President Clinton as a witch hunt. We get a politically motivated prosecutor who is allied with the right-wing opponents of my husband, They worry that the tribalism may only get worse. There are now groups out there that are making an industry of forcing public records from the government, and they're on both sides of the political aisle. Several staffers who worked for Barack Obama created a nonprofit called American Oversight that is using open records requests and lawsuits to get information from the Trump administration. Uh, Last time I talked to them, they said they had about 600 Freedom of Information Act requests into the Trump administration, just to give you some context there. And they're following the lead of a conservative group called Judicial Watch that successfully forced the release of the contents of Hillary Clinton's personal email server. So you're starting to see these partisan groups out there uh, waging almost what some people are calling an ethics war. Tom Sheck of APM Reports, our investigative arm. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can read Tom's full investigation, Ethics Be Damned, at Marketplace.org. This series was produced by Katie Long, Eve Tro, and Catherine Winter. What does $800 million sound like? My son, it is your time. Show me my respect and bow down. You get to decide what kind of king you are going to be. Marvel's Black Panther has rocketed past $800 million in worldwide sales in just two weeks and is expected to soon pass a billion dollars. In a moment, we're going to talk about the other moneymaker for the movie, the merchandise. But there's another winner from Black Panther, African-themed fashion. All those brightly colored and elaborately printed outfits donned by fans at movie theaters across the country, well, they had to come from somewhere, and the source is often small. Small businesses. Christabel Nsia Bawadi brings us a report of how Black Panther is giving a boost to the African clothing business. Do you have any other colors? 
Business is brisk at the African clothing store Kutula in Los Angeles. It's owned by sisters Kay and Bo Analoa. You won't find your grandmother's traditional church outfit here, though. Katula sells fashion-forward outfits by contemporary designers, as well as their own creations. The sisters took over their mother's business in 2014, and they've always catered to a variety of needs. Here's Kay Analoa. We were actually having a lot of people coming in. They were having African-themed baby showers, and, and this is the baby for the past several years. At least once a week, we'd have people coming in with a Coming to America theme party. And then, says Bo Analoa, Marvel's Black Panther happened. Immediately when the trailer was announced, we were receiving phone calls. Uh, And the interesting part is that spontaneously and independently people called. It wasn't as if they had spoken to a friend. They all made independent decisions that I've seen this trailer and I must get my outfit ready. Other L.A.-based African retail stores have experienced a surge too, like Crown Ruby Collections. They've seen a 25% jump in sales from January through now, and that's from people who have been purchasing the items to wear to the premieres. That's Michelle Dalton Tyree, the founder and editor-in-chief of Fashion Trends Daily. While all of this is exciting, she adds that increased sales of film-related clothing and merchandise is typical, especially with the support of a marketing machine. In 2016 alone, entertainment and character licensing sales were $118 billion. So that machine is massive and we see those things trickle down. But this is different. Fans aren't only buying clothing inspired by Black Panther. It looks like they're influencing trends. Here's Dalton Tyree again. This is absolutely something that we will see in fast fashion retailers uh, such as H&M, such as Zara. And we've already been seeing everything from the fabrics, whether it's an ecot print or tribal necklaces. You see those trickle down into the masses. And of course, it's fabulous fashion. If you're a stylist who's trying to bring something new and you're checking what's going on, you're checking the African scene. That is designer Wumi Olaya, owner of Wow Wow by Wumi. Look at the Louis Vuitton when they did the Ghana Must Go Bag. Come on. So in case you're wondering, Olaya is referring to the large red, white and blue grocery bags prolific in parts of West Africa. That didn't come out from nowhere. There's somebody in-house there who is definitely very aware of the African scene. Stella McCartney, everyone has been bitten by the African bug. So if the African design aesthetic is now part of the established fashion cycle, what could this mean for the independent designers who are at the cutting edge? Bo Analoa of Kutula is cautiously optimistic. I think African fashion has now have a, has a place in fashion, and that cycle is just part of the course. We just hope that it continues to turn so that new trends come and um, new designers and new fabrics come out. That, that help people advance the, the overall spectrum. In Los Angeles, I'm Christabel Insiabwadi for Marketplace. From the Black Panther bump for African fashion to the movie's merchandise, success on screen can potentially mean plenty of money to be made off screen as well. Hasbro announced it's making more Black Panther toys than it has for any other Marvel character's first movie. And for $30, you can grab a Black Panther tank top and legging set from parent company Disney's online shop. 
to move a product from the big screen to something you can buy, it often comes down to one thing: licensing. At every point during the creation of a product, there are approvals, so that the the owner of the movie has to approve、uh, what's being done by the licensee. That's Martin Brockstein, senior vice president at the International Licensing Industry Merchandisers Association. Whoever owns a movie basically rents out the images, designs, or storylines to companies who then sell the products you see in stores or online. There's a reason they call it show business. The goal is profit. For a movie like Black Panther, which is steeped in black identity and representation, there's a risk of coming off as commodifying a culture. One person's appropriation is another person's homage. There are very few homogeneous communities、uh, at this point, so、um, I guess you know there's always going to be comments on on both sides. For more on that, I spoke with Jamie Broadnax, founder and managing editor of BlackGirlNerds dot com, and Evan Narcisse, senior writer for Gizmodo's IO9 and writer for the upcoming Rise of the Black Panther comic series. And Evan started with his thoughts on the Black Panther merchandise so far. What's striking is that first and foremost, we're seeing black children play and imagine and reflect themselves as shown on the screen. In the Black Panther movie, and that's and that's striking because、um, it feels like this is not an instance where there are tokens or being used to reflect a multicultural kind of viewpoint on a product. This feels like it's black first. Jamie, I want to chat in particular about costumes. When Disney, the parent company of Marvel, has a movie this big, you often see a whole slew of costumes for kids, for adults, and much has been made of the women's costumes in the movie Black Panther. But if you go on Disney's website, the only costume right now is sort of the Black Panther superhero costume. Why do you think that is? You know, I don't know why. Just as we celebrate other movie properties and see those costumes on display, we should be able to see that with Black Panther. Black children and white children and all kinds of folks can be able to celebrate、uh, the beauty of what Black Panther represents. So I don't quite know why that is, but it it is stunning to me that we haven't been able to see that yet. Black Panther fandom. Reached a fever pitch because there was this yearning for representation and for seeing ourselves in heroic roles and complex roles、um, as they're presented in the movie. And I think there is a corollary desire to promulgate that, play as that in the real world. You know, whether you're an adult or a child, I've seen people dressed up as Adora Milaje, the elite fighting force, who are prominently used in the movie. So it's weird that there's no Dora Milaje costumes. They they are as heroic, if not more so, than the the main character is in the movie. Denai Guerrero's character Okoye, the the moral and ethical concerns of the movie reside in her character, and you know,、um, she's a badass too. She's you know a a a, a warrior who kicks butt. And she basically takes names.、Um, so she's a character that you'd want to be if you were a, a young girl、um, watching this movie. There have been conversations in my newsroom, and I'm sure in many other spaces, where the question comes up: What happens if six, seven months from now, a white child comes to their parent and says, "I want to dress up as Adora Milaje for Halloween. Is that okay?" 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is okay. There's been costumes and superheroes that have been played by white actors for a very long time. I know myself growing up, you know, I wanted to be the queen in all of these different kind of fictional stories that were usually represented by, you know, white female characters. And now I think that it would be absolutely beautiful to see non-Black children and adults dress up as the Dora Milaje. It's a celebration of a great character who embodies strength, who embodies womanhood in a very significant way. Everybody should just celebrate it. There, there's a universal message in the film Black Panther and, you know, Wakanda Forever means a lot to a lot of different people. And yes, it is steeped in Black identity and it means way more for us as Black people uh, what this film represents. But, you know, at the end of the day, this film made almost a nearly a billion dollars. So there's a lot of people out there that really love the film, really support the message and want to be a part of it. We're chatting with Jamie Broadnax, founder and managing editor of BlackGirlNerds.com, and Evan Narcisse, senior writer for Gizmodo's io9 and writer for the upcoming Rise of the Black Panther comic series. Evan, part of the reason this conversation is happening is because people have real concerns about cultural appropriation. What do you think? I think it's hard to even uh, use that frame of context in this movie because um, Wakanda, as imagined in the movie is a syncretic creation, right? It's something that pulls in aesthetics and influences and practices from all across the continent of Africa, right? It's an imagined place. So it's tough to appropriate from an imagined place, right? That's one. But the the second part of this question is Wakanda and the Black Panther and everything surrounding the the mythos of the character is um, a celebration of Black diasporan identity, right? And uh, the thing about what we're seeing now in in the possible merchandising is going to have to reflect the context, right? You know, of course it's okay for um, a white grown-up or a white kid to dress up as as the Black Panther or the Dora Milaje or any of these characters. What I hope comes with that is a discussion of the context. You know, every superhero has that little core nugget of what defines their heroism, right? Superman comes here as a baby, and even though he's not human, he he ascends to represent what is best in humanity. Batman, it's about how he turns his trauma into heroism. With Black Panther, the core of, of, of his heroic identity is colonialism and an anti-colonialist response. So, you know, when I talk to my seven-year-old daughter about why the Black Panther is important, I talk about colonialism. You know, it's an opportunity to have that conversation and to talk about why Wakanda is special because this is a place where these awful things that happened in real world history didn't happen. As you're talking about context, the context of this is also that this is a Disney movie and Disney doesn't exactly have a 100 percent track record when it comes to translating some of these culturally sensitive uh, communities to merchandising. I can speak to that in saying that Disney is being very careful and they have reached out to influencers of color um, and wanted to get feedback on, hey, uh, where are we going with this? Do you think this idea uh, for 
having this costume or this makeup line would be appropriate to market to mass audiences. You know, they want to learn from past mistakes. Moana, that came with some controversy. A lot of the costumes that was adapted from Moana were based on actual, you know, costumes that have been worn by people um, that are native to that area. So that would probably classify as cultural appropriation. Evan, when marketing anything, the comic you're writing or Black Panther costumes, what is the big picture? I guess this is for both of you. What is the big picture for how you can do so with the proper context and history? I hope it starts with people in the room from the earliest parts of the decision-making process, right? And and when I say people in the room, um, I hope they're just Black people in the room. I hope that there's a multi-ethnic core of decision makers who can weigh in and feel safe on weighing in with problems or concerns that they may have. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think that, you know, people need to understand the importance and the value of this film. And folks like myself already see that in the toys that are currently being distributed. And I haven't really seen any kind of backlash or, you know, anything where people have had a negative reaction to that. So it's it, it's exciting to see how well it's been embraced. So much of the success of this movie at the box office and potentially in merchandising is due to the black cultural energy that went into it. Do the companies licensing or making profits off of this imagery and this energy have the duty to share those profits with these communities? I mean, Disney's a a giant corporation that's predicated on making money for its shareholders. But one would hope that they, they see the opportunity to to reinvest in the communities that have made this um, a success. I'm not saying there's a moral obligation, and they're, it's, they're certainly not beholden to do so, but um, it'd be nice. Yeah, I, I agree with Evan's sentiments there. It would be nice to see them reinvest in communities and to be able to you know, fund conventions, fund communities. Are they obligated to do it? Absolutely not. Um, but it it would be nice to see those sentiments. And I think it's a good look for them, PR-wise, kind of set a new precedent and say, hey, we've made all of this money from this film and we want to reinvest. That was Jamie Brodnax, founder of BlackGirlNerds.com and co-founder of the Universal FanCon, a diversity-focused fan convention coming up in April, and Evan Narcisse, a senior writer for Gizmodo's io9 and author of the upcoming Rise of the Black Panther comic series. Before we go, a little in case you missed it from Marketplace. Earlier this week, my colleague Kai Rizdal sat down with Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin at UCLA. I was there with my D.C. reporter hat on. There were some protesters and hissing from the audience. But Kai's conversation covered everything from U.S. sanctions on North Korea to economic growth and the financial lives of the middle class. What was it about the president's economic agenda that made you say, I want to do this and, and work on this? Look, I, I go back to the comment of, you know, the financial crisis impacted lots of people. Um, I, I operated banks that, were, that went under during the financial crisis. Um, I saw the impact of what went on and how important banks are to local communities. 
and the economic issues, and, and I felt an obligation uh, to try to do things that would help people and help the economy, and particularly the middle class. And I think we're, we're very proud of these accomplishments. So we'll get to that in a minute. We'll get to the tax bill and all that in a minute. But I want to talk about the last section of your remarks here about the sanctions that you were in charge of and responsible for, um, specifically the North Korean sanctions that were announced on Friday, yes. the new round. Um, sanctions, as you know, take years and decades to play out. The question is, do you, and more particularly, the president, have the patience to let them play out with North Korea? Well, I'm, I'm not going to comment on kind of what we're going to do going forward and what patients we have and what patients we don't have, but I don't agree with you on your premise. So, that, that they take decades? Yeah, I don't North agree North Korea's with that been under sanction for decades, sir. Iran's no, been under sanction not, for decades. It, it, it again, is true. You can listen to the entire interview and the sometimes combative audience Q&A at our website, marketplace.org. And that's it for this Marketplace Weekend. The show is produced by Peter Balanon-Rosen and Eliza Mills. Joanne Griffith is our executive producer. And Drew Jostad is our engineer. Naren Rao composed our theme music. And Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. And I'm Kimberly Adams. Thanks for listening. This is APM.